Our Father and our God, in this worship service, the way you have set up communication between you and your people in congregation, we have spoken what you ought to have, worship and praise and adoration, a recognition of your kingship and your lordship, not only over our lives, but the earth. And now it is time for us to hear from you as we turn to your word. I pray that the Holy Spirit, who inspired men to write this, would also illumine our hearts so that we might receive what you have for us. Help us to reaffirm in our own minds that this is life for us. It is food for us. And help us to eat and consume for our benefit and your glory. I also pray for myself, Lord, that you would... uh, You would help me to stick with exactly the purpose that you have in mind for this. And if I would say anything that uh, veers from that, may you leave it unheard. That we we desire to hear from you and you alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would, I think the best strategy for you this morning would be to turn to John chapter 9. And I will just sort of work down through that passage, uh, making comments as we go. So this, this narrative in, in John uh, chapter 9 starts with an observation, a question by Jesus' disciples. Verse 1 says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, that's, that's a reasonable question, because uh, if this is a cause and effect world, what a person does... Uh, they receive the rewards and, and the, the results of their actions. Um, sometimes it would be punishments, maybe, if, if you do something wrong. This man has offered, uh, obviously suffered, and so therefore, um, somebody seems to have done something wrong. And, and people, everybody thinks this way. The, the disciples are no different than anybody else. People who like equity think that this way. People who believe the universe has a balance think this way. People who evaluate other people's behaviors, like parents and teachers and judges, think this way. People who hope for justice think this way. People who are believers in God think this way. People who, people who don't believe in God but believe in some sort of fate or some kind of karma think this way. Because cause and effect just makes sense. And, and even in this kind of situation where something went wrong, it seems to require an explanation. So what caused this? Well, if you look through it with religious lenses, you have to say that God is involved in this situation, right? That more specifically, if you're a Jewish person at this time, trained by the Mosaic Covenant, you know that the Lord is the Lord of blessings and curses. And and they're expressed in very physical ways. And so the question gets more specific. I mean, you've heard Job and his friends talk this way, right? Somebody did something wrong, what caused this? The results are bad. What caused this? And to speak very bluntly about it in, in personal ways, who sinned here? Who sinned? And Jesus' answer in verse 3 was strange. And it's strange because it doesn't fit the order and the organization that they had in mind. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, 
Jesus didn't do away with the connection between sin and suffering when he said that. Not as a principle, at least. But he did say there are some other reasons why a person might suffer. And this particular man was suffering for another reason, neither his sin nor his parents' sin. And, and the reason this man was blind, blind from birth, was that God could display his work in him. And we're going to see that this is not just healing the blindness, but also changing his direction of life. And, and, but it wasn't about him. God was about to do something glorious. And this was about Jesus. And this situation and this particular person with this particular problem is going to be the place where God displays his works. And that was the critical reason why that man was born blind. And if you think about it, though, this, this is important for us for a couple reasons. First of all, Jesus confounds the logic of the disciples and, and, and Job's friends when, when he says that pain and suffering are not necessarily attributed to somebody's misbehavior, right? And, and some tragedies are simply the stage in which God is going to work his glory. And, and if you think about this, it, may, it, it should slow us down when we try to figure out why things happen. Okay, we can't always explain why tragedy comes, nor can we always explain why good comes to people either. Over this year, I've had friends who have had uh, bouts with cancer and basically have gone for the same treatments for the same types of cancer and, and received the same prayers to the same God for the same things, and one has responded in health and the other has passed away. How do you explain something like that? I don't think we can. The other reason this is important is because though we're not told how old the man is, it's going to be mentioned or at least talked about later, we do know that he's old enough to have both his parents and yet still be considered a grown man. So if I had to guess, and this is purely a guess, he's somewhere between 20 and 40 maybe. Well. What that means is this man, blinded from birth, has been blind for 20 to 40 years, maybe, maybe less, maybe a little bit less, maybe more. But the length of his blindness, his whole life is interesting because it's only in this day that Jesus walks up and says that the works of the Lord are going to be demonstrated in him. Think about that. Decades of blindness so that the Lord can do something glorious. If Jesus is right, doesn't it also mean that the demonstration of God's glorious works is more important than this man's vision? For decades he was blind, for this scene. And, and, and this must mean that suffering is not the ultimate bad that can come to us and good health is not the ultimate value for us as Christians. This must mean that God's glory, his good works, are more significant than our health. And that's a difficult message in America today, right? We, we spend tons of money trying to protect our health as if it's an ultimate value. And we spend even much more money entertaining ourselves with people who will hopefully 
help us forget our frailties and our mortality. This is disturbing that this man would be blind for so long just for this one scene with Jesus. But I think it demonstrates God's value, and I think James 1 would agree with this as well. But that's not really the point of what happens. The point is in verses 4 and 5. Jesus goes on to make a cryptic statement that says, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now this is interesting because the disciples haven't done much at this point, and they're not going to do much in this scene, really. But Jesus includes them in, saying that this is their work too. And, and there will be a day in which they extend his ministry farther than, than is imaginable, really. But, but Jesus includes them at this point. And his point is that they have to get busy. Time is limited, and Jesus is on an agenda. There's a job to do, and there's a timetable to get it done as long as it is day. Which means they need to act purposefully. And as we, we continue to read, we'll see what that means as it plays out, that this work is to shed light on those who are in darkness. That's what Jesus' work is. And in this way, this scene is really just a small piece of what Jesus' worldwide ministry is going to turn out to be through the work of the disciples. And so this individual healing and demonstration of God's work is, is a small picture of what explodes from this point. Verse 5 is the statement that draws us here. Jesus says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. It's, it's phrased a little bit differently, but this is the, not the first time Jesus has claimed to be the light of the world. In, in chapter 8, verse 12, if you look back just one chapter, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he called all men to follow him when he said that. And in chapter 8, when he said it uh, for the first time, he wasn't alone with his disciples like this. He was in a very large crowd, and it contained Pharisees and a lot of other people. And, and he claimed to be light in, of the world, and, and it created immediate dispute. And the rest of chapter 8 is this back and forth with, with Jesus and the crowd, and, and, and the Pharisees were there. And, and in that dispute, the Pharisees become more hardened against Jesus. That was just one chapter ago, and now he has not backed off that statement, but rather doubled down on it and said it again here. Jesus is the light of the world, and the disciples and those around him heard it here. But my question is, what could he mean by light? Because at this point, Jesus doesn't define what he means. So what would have jumped into his hearer's mind when he says, I'm the light of the world? Well, most... Most Jews, which, which is who surrounded him at that point, might have thought of the, the, the way that light guided the people in their history as they left the ex, uh, through the exodus of Egypt. They left, and there was this pillar of fire, this pillar of light that guided them. So maybe, maybe they would have thought that this is Jesus saying, if we follow him, he will lead us as a pillar of fire. But it doesn't seem to mean that. Sometimes scripture uses the idea of light and darkness to portray good and evil. And as a matter of fact, one of the songs we just sang had something to say about that. In Job 30, 26, it says, When I expected good, 
then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. Light and dark, good and evil. Psalm 107.10 says, There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains. So darkness is symbolic of what we all are without God. Darkness is moral evil. Darkness is, uh, is isolation from the life of God. Darkness, light, then, is moral good. And uh, this, is, this has some crossover areas leading with wisdom and understanding as well. It's not just moral, but it's intellectual. A person who is in the dark doesn't understand. A person who is in light has understanding. And, and the person who is in the dark, often, when he doesn't have understanding, they're oblivious to physical and spiritual danger. It's this kind of darkness that is a lack of wisdom as well as moral behavior. That's why in Proverbs, when you're a fool, you're not just foolish, you're sinfully foolish, right? And in Proverbs 4.19, it says, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. They, they are immoral in their foolishness. They perceive the world incorrectly and also act sinfully. And that's why the fools are mor morally wrong and evil. And that's not just in Proverbs. Listen to Paul. This is Ephesians 4, 17 and 19. He gives instructions to Christians and he says, Walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in their futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. What's the problem with these Gentiles? Are they foolish? Are they immoral? Yes, they're both. And each one causes the other. Sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. And stupidity will grease your way to sinfulness. The two work hand in hand. Evil dwells in darkness, just as evil people do. And the ultimate context of this truth is really in hell, which is characterized by darkness. It's the absence of God's presence, the absence of God's blessing. And Jesus gives one of the scariest descriptions of hell in Matthew 22:13, when he says, Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness. That place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is the outer darkness. Hell is the outer darkness. However, the good news is, people don't have to stay in darkness, right? We are called from darkness by God. Isaiah 50.10 says, Who among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let this man trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So there's a way out of sinful stupidity, sinful darkness, by trusting and relying on God. Isaiah 49.6 furthers this thought and makes it more specific because God is now talking about his servant, Jesus Christ, in the book of Isaiah, when he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations 
so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. He's speaking about Jesus, God's servant in Isaiah, and how he's going to restore Israel, and he says that he will be a light of the nations. Well, that sounds a lot in Isaiah like light of the world in John. God's servant will be a beacon that shines among people trapped in darkness, even Gentiles, believe it or not. Now, could it be, therefore, that in John 9, this chapter where a blind man receives not only sight but spiritual life, that, that we are getting a small glimpse of the salvation of the world through Jesus? When Jesus says that he has an agenda of work is the light of the world and work to do, and he gets busy with it by looking at one blind man. This is a part of something bigger, I think. And these are some of the themes that Jesus takes on as he claims to be light of the world. And yet there's something else going on in chapter 9 as well. And it's predicted by John when John introduces Jesus in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus is described this way. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John is predicting Jesus' light, introducing Jesus' light. However, at the same time, John also introduces the idea that the light will not benefit everybody. Darkness will not defeat light, but not everybody who has light shown on them is going to enjoy the light. Right? And, and in this, turn with me, if you would, to John 3. In John 3, there's this heartbreaking statement. And, and really, it comes right after John 3.16, which is a, a wonderful description of God's love and Jesus' sacrifice. Everybody knows John 3.16. But a few verses later, in John 19 through 21, follow what he's, he's saying. This is, this is Jesus. And it says, this, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God so I mean this is just on one hand, but on the other hand, it's very troubling as well. Because light shines on people and shows them for who they are, and it shows the unethical and immoral parts of us, and, and it's, there are parts of us that we'd rather keep hidden, keep covered up, and exposes who we are and the immorality that we do. And some people, when they're revealed in this way, would rather stay immoral and hate the fact that the light got turned on at all. They'd rather enjoy the secrecy that allowed them to operate. They enjoyed the anonymity that allowed them to act out. They enjoyed the denial that allowed them to rebel. They hate the light that shows on themselves to themselves and to others. Right? And it reveals guilt, it reveals shame, and so they hate it. And in chapter 9, 
Jesus is this kind of light as well. As we read, I think you're going to see that Jesus shines, and as he shines, some enjoy the light, others are going to hate it. Jesus actually responds with action back in chapter 9 and verse 6. Now, he has not explained a lot of what I just said. He just declares, I'm the light of the world, and he goes to work. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent, so, that, so he went away and washed and came back seeing. Okay? Jesus demonstrated God's mercy towards this blind man in this two-step miracle. Okay? Through the ages, there's been a lot of significance, uh, debate about the significance of what is Jesus doing here. He's mixing spit and dirt together to heal this man, and I've got nothing that I can say that will end the debate, okay? So I'll just lay that out there right off. I mean, I do know a, a few things. For example, uh, the, the idea that you come in contact with bodily fluids of another person is, is ritually not a good thing in the Old Testament. Leviticus 5.8 says that the man with the discharge spits in, on one who is clean, he too shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. It doesn't necessarily mean that disease is passed on when this happens, but a person is considered ritually unclean and unable to worship when, when, when body fluids mix around with other people, right? And so... Um, is, is this significant that what, what is unclean for other people, Jesus can actually heal with? Is there some kind of statement of power in that? I don't know. Personally, for me, it made me think of Genesis 2, when God bends down, picks up dirt, and blows life into Adam and makes him exist. I don't know if Jesus is recreating what his father has done in Adam as he makes this, this mud for this man's eye. I don't know. But is Jesus imitating his father. There seems to be no definitive answer to this point. And what is interesting is, within the size of this whole story, the actual healing of the man is a very, very small part that we just read. There, there, are, there are many verses in this, and, it, and really in two verses, the man gets this two-step healing. It doesn't seem that the focus of the chapter is on the healing at all, though it is certainly necessary for the chapter to, to work. Now, the whole healing is not complete until the man washed in the pool of Siloam. And, and what this does in the story is it serves to sort of separate Jesus from the man. The man does his thing and Jesus goes his way. And, and um, really, this is the last we see of Jesus for a bit here. But the man definitely goes to the pool of Siloam. He does what he's told to do. And he comes back seeing uh, just as a side note, uh, it was just reported in September that archaeologists have found the steps that lead, lead down into the pool of Siloam uh, just recently. I don't know when they did it, but it hit the papers in sep September. And uh, so, so certainly that was in, within probably a few feet of where this happened, which is very interesting. And so after washing in the pool, the man was able to see. And, and then you get to this idea of explanations. What just happened here? And, and the first explanation is one that the crowd wants. And, and this is the point when the controversy starts to stir. Therefore, the neighbors and those previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is, is not this one the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. And still others were saying, no, but he is like him. 
he kept saying, I am the one. And so they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? And he answered, the man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. And they asked, excuse me, they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. So the first question had to do with his identity. Was this the person who was blind to begin with? And for a congenitally blind man, probably the only way he had to sustain himself was begging. So a lot of people had walked past him in public places, and they would have seen him like that. And of course, you kind of don't pay a lot of attention to those people. You note they're there. They're kind of in the background a lot of the time, unless you make the effort to address that person. So though a lot of people had seen him, maybe they didn't see him. Maybe it was another guy, right? And so the question is, is this the guy or not? Well, he eventually made enough people believe that he was the guy. I'm sure there were still some doubters. But, but uh, you know, what is easier to believe? This is the guy I've seen a lot, or he can now see himself. And so the choices are, are not easy, either one. And, and yet he seems to have convinced uh, the doubters that he was that man, and he was able to see. So the next question is, obviously, how did you get your sight? Now, again, look at the man's answer. He says, the man who's called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. Now, now notice this is just a list of facts, right? He, has, he doesn't embellish it. He doesn't detail it. He doesn't, he doesn't interpret it or make commentary. It's just what happened, and it's just a short list of facts. And, and yet, uh, there seems to be a more need for explanation. So the crowd goes to the people who ought to be able to explain this, and that's the Pharisees. And in verse 13, they brought the Pharisees to the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees were all also asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Now, the people going to get the Pharisees, that's kind of a natural thing to do. In the Old Testament, uh, people who, who had different kinds of handicaps or illnesses, certain kinds of, of diseases and that kind of thing, when they had gotten better, when they were healed, they were supposed to go to the temple and the Levites and, and, and people there were supposed to sort of pass judgment. Yes, you're healed. Yes, you can come back in the congregation. Yes, you can, you can do this. Or they would examine them and say, no, come back when you're really healed, right? And so in that sense, they were kind of a health department as well as somebody who protected the worship there. And, and so they, were, they defended in that way. It was natural for somebody to want some kind of temple official, some kind of religious official to say, this is what happened. And so the people go to the Pharisees and, and ask for this. Well, um, it would not have been line, but out of line. But since this happened on the Sabbath, there's another part of this story, right? And another reason the Pharisees are interested in it. It's not that just a man might have been healed, but this happened on the Sabbath. And, and the question is, is Jesus breaking the Sabbath? And, and again, these are laws, as you know, that are not in the Mosaic Covenant, but are established because of the Mosaic Covenant. And it's the, the attempt to apply the Mosaic Covenant to every part of life. And so uh, the Pharisees, being sort of religious lawyers, they were interested in whether Jesus had broken the law and how he had done it. Um, what did he do on the Sabbath? Was scratching around in the dirt 
some kind of illegal plowing? Was, was Jesus kneading the mud some kind of illegal thing where you couldn't knead bread on the Sabbath? Neither should you knead mud, I guess. What, uh, there was clearly a, a, a rule that says you should not heal or do medical work if it can be put off till later. If, if nobody was going to die, you put off the medical work that you could do. And so these, there's all these questions about what is Jesus doing. And the Pharisees come in and thinking this troublemaker has definitely done it again, right? And so upon questioning the man who was blind, he, again, all he does is give them facts. And if anything, he's, he's shortened up the, the facts. He's shortened the story, not embellished it. And so it's almost as if he's personally keeping his testimony to the few indisputable facts that he definitely knows. Well, this creates a dilemma for the Pharisees. Remember that the book of John has already recorded that the Pharisees and Jesus have had disputes. And that may explain why they interpreted Jesus the way they did. It says, therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. This healing on the Sabbath is both an amazing thing and an offensive thing at the same time to this group of people. The Pharisees are left with a dilemma. On the one hand, the miracle implies that Jesus is accredited by God. Not, not only did he claim to be from God, but the miracle seemed to validate that he's telling the truth. However, on the other hand, he was being antagonistic to everything religious and holy that they, they thought valuable. And, and he was an offense. And to work on the Sabbath must mean that he was not from God, but a sinner. So how are they going to sort through this dilemma? Well, the first thing is they turn back to the blind man, or the previously blind man, and, and they say to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. They're asking him to interpret Jesus for them. And he says the one thing that makes sense to him is that Jesus is a prophet. Now, this is obviously a miracle that's happened, and the overwhelming number of miracles that are done in the Old Testament are done by prophets. And so, you know, prophets say they come from the Lord, just as Jesus did. They say that they come to give a word from the Lord, just as Jesus did. And then they work signs and wonders to validate that, that their message was from God, just as Jesus did. And it makes perfect sense to this man that Jesus is a prophet. And even though this made perfect sense, that is not what the, what the Pharisees wanted to hear. They already made Jesus into so much of an enemy that they couldn't accept that he was a prophet from God. They turned on the man then at this point and they start to discredit him. And, and even at this stage of the story, you see that this man who has been healed has a better understanding of Jesus than these Pharisees who are watching this. They're stumbling further from the truth. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the one who had received the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned him saying is this your son who you say was born blind how then does he now see so this investigation has really turned kind of contentious at this point they had to find a loophole in the story Maybe this guy was just faking it. Maybe this is not the same guy. They got the parents so that he could, they could invalidate the man's story. 
They would affirm what they knew, and they would stay out of trouble in their eyes. You see this in verse 20. His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and, and that he was born blind. How he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, for he is of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, and for this reason his parents said, he is of age, ask him. These parents didn't want any trouble. They don't want any trouble from any Pharisees. And so they just told the basics of what they knew. It was already well established that, that pumping up Jesus, following Jesus, would help you to lose your status in the synagogue, lose your status in the community, and these folks didn't want it. They did not want to be estranged from the life of God. They didn't want any trouble in the community, and so therefore they said as little as possible. They confirmed their son, they confirmed his former uh, problem of blindness, and they said, that's all we know, go talk to him. He's legally of age to give testimony. Well, this brings the Pharisees' dilemma to the second point of interview, really. It says, so a second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that I, though I was blind, now I see. And so they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you not, do you, excuse me, you do not want to become his disciple too, do you? So this man is clearly told what he knows. And if anything, his answers are getting shorter and, and, and less complicated. I was blind, now I see right? And, and he's shortening the story to as much as he can, but you can just tell he, he's getting frustrated with this. They ask him, and it's very clear that he's to answer without complimenting Jesus. They said, we know he's a sinner. Treat him like a sinner. Give glory to God, not to him, right? Stop talking this way about the sinner. And the man doesn't. He gives his short, factual account. These guys are trying to set Jesus up for a fall. They were certainly not trying to follow Jesus. He understood that. And so, in a bit of a sarcastic way, he asked the question, do you want to follow him? Is that why you're so interested? The irony of this is if Jesus was from God, they should follow him. But there's no way they're going to follow him. They were resolute in their opposition, and the problem intensifies. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The Pharisees, when, he's, when they say they don't know where he's from, it, mean, it doesn't mean they don't know where he was born or where he was raised or that kind of thing necessarily. It, it means he claims to come from God, but we don't know where he comes from. 
right? And the Pharisees are clarifying the sides in this disagreement. They, they line up who's on whose side. Look at this. We are with God. We are with Moses. Now, you may think that Jesus is a prophet, but there is no question that God has spoken through Moses, and particularly spoken through Moses on this issue of the Sabbath. And, and th they've lined up things so that if you're going to be with Jesus, you're going to be against God. You're going to be against Moses. And, and moreover, the second point is this guy, Jesus, is an unknown. And the message to the blind man is pretty clear, even though it's just implied, you better get on our side of this problem. The man answered and said to them, verse 30, well, now here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So now, the man who was previously giving facts is now making some very good arguments on Jesus' behalf. First, how can the Pharisees say they don't know much about Jesus when it is their very job to understand people like Jesus. They are supposed to know these sort of things. If they don't know about religious claims and can verify who is what religiously and spiritually, why are they in that job? That's what they do. They're negligent if they don't know where Jesus is from. Secondly, if Jesus was a sinner, why is God working through him? He must be aligned with God, or God wouldn't hear and empower him. Nobody has ever heard of a person born blind ever receiving sight. If you go through the Old Testament, there are people who can see, who lose their eyesight, who get it back, but there's nobody who is born blind who receives their sight. They're finished with this man, and they declare it. The questioning ends not with a logical or spiritual response. It's just an act of raw power. Verse 34 says, they answered him, you are born entirely of sin and you are teaching us? So they put him out. They're finished with this man. They declare him as, as sinful and throw him out. The disciples' original question was, who was the sinner, the man or his parents? The Pharisees have given their verdict this man was born entirely in sins. And this, what happened to this man, was exactly what the parents were afraid would happen to them. This is the worst spiritual sentence that the Pharisees could give to the man. He was declared a sinner and exiled from the synagogue. When it says that they put him out, they, they did what we would call excommunication. He was not able to worship as he previously was. Well, Jesus then comes and gives further light to the situation. He has not been there for 29 verses. And he returns to the man in verse 35, and he says, Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you.
And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus comes to the man, and it's not enough that the man thought Jesus was a prophet. It is not enough that the man thought Jesus was a miracle worker. Jesus declared to the man that he was the son of man. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has called himself this, and so it's not surprising he calls himself this at, at this point. The title comes from Daniel 7. When the Lord gives the Son of Man eternal dominion of the earth and the ability to, to be served by all men. This is a godlike figure whom the Father has established. And this man, who was born blind, was given a second dose of vision. The Pharisees had thrown him away because of his allegiance to Christ, and he knew nothing better than to follow Christ more deeply. He knew nothing better than to confess, after asking these questions, that Jesus was Lord. He calls Jesus Lord, he believes what Jesus said, and he worshiped Jesus, the Lord. And in verse 39, Jesus makes another purpose statement. And this is really quite in line with the first one he gave at the top of the chapter. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Jesus had previously said he had work to do, and now he defines his mission with this second purpose statement. By the end of the story, this is obvious, right? Jesus is using this very real situation of a blind man brought to sight. He's using that real situation as just a metaphor. As important as blindness and vision is, this is just a picture of a more important spiritual reality than this man's sight. By the end of the chapter, the man's vision is not even important. It's in, what's important here is whether this man or the Pharisees or can anyone see spiritually. The spiritual ver verses, excuse me, the spiritual vision in verses thirty in verse thirty-eight is much more important than the physical vision in verse seven. Jesus is the light of the world, and when he shines, some will gain the ability to see; others will remain and be even more re-entrenched in spiritual blindness. Jesus offers spiritual vision to those who can't see, and at the same time, the rejection of Jesus solidifies blindness. And, and in this sense, Jesus, by his very presence and what he does, divides people into two camps. When he reveals himself, when he is revealed, when you present the gospel, it brings both grace to some people and gives offense to others. It's imperative for us to understand that in the very act of saving those who believe, there's a condemnation of those who don't. I think if we realize this, it'll not only help our worship as it does this man, but it also helps our evangelism to understand what we face. 
And Jesus not only gives his purpose statement to the previously blind man, but others must have heard it because he said it in public and the Pharisees responded. They heard it and then they asked Jesus a question about their own condition. Now they ask him about their own condition, not to address their condition, but to confirm their rejection of Jesus. Listen in verse 40. Those of the Pharisees who were, there, who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you, were bl- if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. They are convinced that Jesus is evil. And in their entrenchment against Jesus, the Pharisees have forgotten that the blind gaining their vision was, pre- was predicted in Isaiah. This is a work of God. Isaiah 29, 18 says, On that day, the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah pre- pre- predicted that in 35, 5, as well as 42, 6, and 7. Again, so this is an eschatological prediction that God is moving on behalf of his people. Jesus is fulfilling what God had said would happen. And yet the Pharisees, those who are well-versed in the Old Testament, have been marked by an insistence in their own righteousness and a denial of sin. And when the light comes, it exposes sin. And in that way, light gives offense to us. If we resist, we become more bound to our sin. But if we confess our sin... Light tends to lead to grace, and grace forgives sin. So there's an irony here in which everybody wants to be righteous, and God wants us to be righteous. But to be declared righteous, we must confess sin, and we must uncover it. And if we uncover our sin, he is both faithful and just to forgive it and cover it, cover our sin with the blood of Christ. However, If we try to cover our sin, ourself, by either denying it or explaining it away, God will expose our sin in judgment. This is ironic. If we'll uncover ourselves, God will cover us. But if we try to cover ourselves, he'll uncover us. Those who are humble come to Christ acknowledging their spiritual blindness and call out for illumination and are given by faith eyes to see. Those who respond with confidence in their own way of life and in their own understanding and in their own righteousness will be confirmed in their darkness and be allowed to continue in their own self-righteousness. You can either have your self-righteousness or you could have Christ's righteousness. Which would you prefer? No matter how knowledgeable or how authoritative or the rejection and opposition to Jesus is immoral and it's ignorant. That person is both wrong and foolish. The more someone is in the state that insists on his own righteousness and knowledge, the harder it is for them to see their need for Christ. And that's what we're seeing here. As the light of the world, as Jesus Christ exposes himself, is exposed in the gospel, is exposed in the giving of the gospel, as that light shines forward, 
thank God that some are going to respond with confession, respond with faith, and have salvation from God. Unfortunately, we know the population of hell is not zero, for some will insist on their own righteousness and be more confirmed in their own sin. Let us pray. Father, this shows and explains what we have seen in our own life. We recognize that Jesus is the necessity, the necessity for salvation, and that salvation away from him is judgment from you eventually. I pray that you would be merciful to us, open up our hearts and minds to see the richness of the gospel once more, to have another opportunity to draw nearer to Christ, to have another opportunity to express faith. I pray, Lord, that as we have prayed for the salvation of friends and family, as we have maybe even this past week shared the gospel with some of those who are close to us, I pray that that gospel light would in fact impose on them the nature of their sin, impose on them the goodness of Christ, the beauty of the Lord, that they would in fact, like this blind man, believe and worship him. We ask for your Holy Spirit to go forward and move these hearts and minds, some of them in the room, some of them among friends and family. We also pray for the strength and the power and the words and, and the love to give the gospel to those who need to hear and those who need to see the light. We thank you for Jesus being the light of the world. We pray these things in his name. Amen.